Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive. And for a while, I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. Nature had come into her own again, and little by little had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. On and on wound the poor thread that had once been our drive. And finally, there was Mandalay. Mandalay, secretive and silent. Time could not mar the perfect symmetry of those walls. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy, and suddenly it seemed to me that light came from the windows. And then a cloud came upon the moon and hovered an instant like a dark hand before a face. The illusion went with it. I looked upon a desolate shell with no whisper of the past about its staring walls. We can never go back to Mandalay again. That much is certain. But sometimes, in my dreams, I do go back. G'day everybody and welcome to another episode of Awards Don't Matter. My name is Andrew Pierce, and I'm joined by my co-host Dave, all the way on the other side of the world, to talk about a film. Yeah, you know, hey, what how's a terrible it going? It feels like... That's fine. I mean, you know, we're talking about a terrible movie by a terrible director, so it's fine. This Hitchcock guy? Ugh, what, what a hack. hack. Yep. <laughs> Who's interested yep. in that? Yes, absolutely. No, I'm excited to talk about this one, because this is, um, I think this is one of the first Hitchcock movies I ever saw. Oh, really? Uh, it was a, a, you, you will know this, our listeners may not, that I was very late to Hitchcock uh, in some of his greatest movies. You were one of the people, actually the person, who paid actual money to make me watch Vertigo. Uh, I did, yeah. (laughs) So I was very late to a lot of, I think I saw The Birds when I was a kid, um, and that was kind of it until, like, maybe the last decade or so, and then I started to, like, you know, watch a lot of his movies. Obviously, Vertigo, uh, Psycho actually just did a... Uh, an episode of Offscreen Death uh, with our buddy Mike, uh, where we uh, talked about both Psychos, both uh, Hitchcock's version and Gus Van Sant's version. You can uh, never so... blame me for making you watch terrible things ever again, then. <laughs> that was my choice. That was on me. That was on me. I figured this would be the only time I'll ever 
take the opportunity to watch that because why why would I otherwise? Um, but Rebecca is one that I think I blind bought on Criterion uh, when I first started getting into Criterions and watched it, which is kind of blown away. Um, so it's interesting because we'll talk about it. But like since since watching it that time, I think this is the third or fourth time I've watched it. But uh, about a week before I watched it for this show, I read the book. Uh, so it was definitely a very different experience to have that source material in my head as I watched it this time. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, so we're going to talk about Rebecca. So I'm excited to do that. Yeah. And, and for me, like growing up, I, I mean, the birds was the first Hitchcock film that I watched. I, I remember it vividly. I was about six years old at the time and just stood directly in front of the TV transfixed and terrified and loved it. And then uh, I grew up watching Hitchcock films and for some reason, I just, I've had the DVD of it for the longest period of time and I've just never gotten around to it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and the same goes for, in the same year, um, uh, Foreign Correspondent was also nominated for Best Picture, uh, which was obviously another Hitchcock film. And I watched that for the first time too. And the curious thing about these two films, which I find really, really interesting, is that if you took off Hitchcock's name from these films, they kind of almost don't feel very Hitchcockian in the way that we traditionally know them to be mm-hmm. in the, you know, the thriller, the, the, the kind of psycho esque um, rear window kind of uh, strain mm-hmm. of, of what they're supposed to be. Um, Farrakhan's foreign correspondent has, if I can say the name properly, has a lot more uh, suspense and tense sequences than Rebecca does, that's for sure. Um, really, really impactful stuff in that film that's kind of uh, strung together by some not-so-exciting scenes. Um, <laughs> but Rebecca has a lot more of an emotional impact than I expected, uh, which, I, yeah. you know, you don't get from your traditional Hitchcock films. Uh, you don't get that at all. Um, but, yeah, this... Look, I'll play my cards right now because this is the best, best picture winner that I've seen so far. Uh, Mm. Even out of uh, including the ones that we haven't covered on the show, like the modern films and stuff like that. Um, This is just easily one of the best films I've ever seen. Um, Mm. I found it absolutely engaging uh, and emotionally devastating at the end as well um, because the performances just really sell this this powerful powerful oh, yeah. film yeah um, so this is this is a masterpiece um, uh, you know I think it is one of uh, as you know people talk about Hitchcock so much and they talk about rear window they talk about psycho they talk about vertigo and they're all you know deserving of discussions but for some reason Rebecca doesn't get discussed as much as it should do and I don't know why that is, because maybe it's because it doesn't feel as Hitchcockian as his other films do. But that should be no reason to not discuss it. I mean, like, it's just such a, it's such an engaging kind of um, pseudo mystery and drama in a way that unveils and reveals itself in not a way that uh, feels like, you know, there's murder or death or anything like that. There's just human emotions and mm-hmm. that, I think, is such a rarity for Hitchcock's films. Um, did you get that impression all? Are you as enamored with this one as I am? I mean, I'd, I'd love to like be a jerk about this and be like, well, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's lower tier Hitchcock. But no, it's, it's a fantastic movie. I don't, I don't know that it's the best, uh, best picture winner. Uh, I think I will save that for 
you know, there's a, there's a couple biggies coming up, Andrew. Some there's, film about you know, some dude in Arabia or something like that. There's 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 that one. There's um, uh, All About Eve. Um, there's a lot of good, good movies coming up. But this is up there. I mean, this is top-tier stuff. And, and you brought up the comparison to Foreign Correspondent. And it's really interesting. Not only do I think these Hitchcock movies feel different from all the rest, but they feel very different from one another. Um, like if you, if you didn't slap his name on both of these, I'm not sure that I would know that it was the same director. Mm. Uh, they're very different stylistically. They're very different storytelling wise. Like it's not something that screams Hitchcock. And I think in terms of your question and like why we don't talk about Rebecca as much, I, I think you actually, as you spoke, explained exactly why it's easy to talk about movies like uh, like like Vertigo, like Rear Window, like Psycho. They're exciting. They have moments in them of violence and terror and things that we can grasp onto. And Rebecca is very much a mood picture. Um, and it's carried by, and a lot of Hitchcock movies are carried by performances, but these are carried by very subtle uh work here by by all three of the of the kind of lead actors here there's incredible work being done uh by you know by joan fontaine by olivier like it's just i mean granted these are great act actors and actresses like it's it's expected that they'll be wonderful and especially when you have hitchcock behind the camera but it is so different and so much slower than a lot of his um his work that is seen as you know better than this or some of the greatest films of all time wherever you want to put it because you look at like afi list and any list anywhere like you know psycho rewendo and vertigo will all will all be listed above this and i think there's an argument to be made for any of these four movies which just goes to show you how great hitchcock was like there is a reason he is thought of as if not the best one of the best directors of all time um and it's it's his work really holds up it's really strikingly modern uh in the in the way in the way the plots unfold in the way he films like there's he's he was doing stuff that was revolutionary uh in the 40s 50s and 60s which means that now it looks like oh yeah i could see this being done now right some of the language would have to change like in terms of like uh dialogue wise but like in general this is stuff that really really holds up and you know, I know that this movie was in, in it has definitely been that's had an impact on other directors and other films. I mean, Guillermo del Toro has come out and said that his, you know, you know, when he makes his gothic horror uh, movie that everyone was mad that it wasn't actual horror when he made Crimson Peak. He was like, Rebecca was one of the films I was looking at. And like looking at it through that lens, you're like, oh, my God, you can see it. it. Like sense. it's written yeah. all over. Yeah. And this is just. I mean, you can you can sit here and talk about, you know, which performances were best and but it like it works as such a amalgamation of all these performances. Like if you if you replace any of these three with anyone else, the film doesn't fall apart, but it's much lesser. Um, But I think like Joan Fontaine, like what a what a performance like this is just it. There's so much weight on her because she is the one you're traveling with in this horrible world that she's being introduced to everyone else is kind of reacting to this new person in their midst. Um, and if you want to see, you know, the fact that Hitchcock was great, they just tried to make a remake of this 
And it was fucking terrible. It was like one of the worst movies of the year. And that was before Army Hammer, you know, it came out that he was like assaulting women and raping women and doing all this terrible, terrible stuff and, you know, pretending to eat people and all this stuff. That was before any of that stuff came out. And it was still one of the worst movies of the year. And he just like felt bad for everyone involved because there's just there's some works that like you just leave to people who are masters, right? And everyone involved in this movie knew exactly the movie they were making. Like if I talked about, you know, reading the book, and if you read the book, there's there's some things in there that I'm kind of like, uh, I kind of wish. But you have to kind of separate it. Like in the in the book, he is much, 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 much older than our lead character. And they're definitely a little bit closer in age in this version that makes it more comfortable. And they, at the end of this movie, you know, you see uh, that amazing image of this woman in the flames. Um, That's all kind of left to your imagination in the book. The book ends with them traveling back, uh, back to the manor. And then they just see it on fire and you fill in the blanks that this is what happened. But Hitchcock making that extra effort to show that, which is very interesting for Hitchcock because he, he definitely, in general, errs on the side of, like, I'm not going to show you. I'm going to allow you to fill things in. So for him to make this choice, I think it's super interesting. Because if you look at stuff like Psycho, where he doesn't show you, uh, you know, he doesn't show you the up-close of the of the knife going into the skin. He, like, pulls back. He, you know, doesn't show Mother until that last moment. You know, he always really, really holds back. And in this, they make a very different choice into kind of put it all on the table for you. And I think it's, it's super, super effective. And and this is one of those movies that like, it doesn't have weaknesses. Like this isn't a movie that you can be like, well, if they'd switch that, if they'd change that, like it, because it's such a mood piece, like, and you are thrown into this world with her, you don't understand what's going on either. So as it like kind as the story unfolds, it unfolds for her and for you at the same time. It's just wonderfully effective material. It's so it's so massively layered as well. And, you know, as you're saying, Joan Fontaine is just stunning here. And there's a moment where, you know, she effectively... What, what I love about Rebecca is that it takes a plot, which we've kind of seen in other films before, like Dodsworth, um, like Love Affair, where you've got these two wealthy people. Well, you know, uh, Mrs. De Winter, essentially, the second Mrs. De Winter. Uh, she doesn't... She's not wealthy. She's working for somebody, but she is off in a wealthy location. And he, Maxim... Laurence Olivier meets her and then falls in love and all this kind of stuff. And we've seen that kind of story take place so often. And yet she plays this naivety and this kind of uh, fish out of water aspect. Um, you know, she shouldn't be in this world and all this kind of stuff. And, and sure enough, she uh, gets mixed in with all of this kind of stuff quite comfortably. Um, but she plays mm-hmm. it so perfectly up until the point where she realizes that she needs to assert herself to Mrs. Danvers, who played immaculately by Judith Anderson. and Terrifying. Maybe one of the most terrifying characters in any Hitchcock movie. Like terrifying, she, she but... She scares the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think, and we'll touch on this in a moment, but I think that that's, that fire moment really cements the emotionality of this film quite well. And imbues her character with so much emotion that I can't wait to see this again and see it through her mm. eyes. Um, but there's a moment where, you know, Joan Fontaine, she changes on a dime and she realizes, you know, she's got to take control of Mandalay and says, I am Mrs. De Winter now. Sometimes when I walk along the corridor, I fancy I hear her just behind me. That quick, light step. I couldn't mistake it anywhere. It's not only in this room, 
It's in all the rooms in the house. You can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? I don't believe it. Sometimes. I wonder if she doesn't come back here to Manderley. Watch you and Mr. De Winter together. You look tired. Why don't you stay here a while and rest? And listen to the sea. So soothing. Listen to it. Listen. Listen to the sea. Mrs. Danvers, I wish to see her immediately. Send for me, madam. Yes, Mrs. Danvers. I want you to get rid of all these things. These are Mrs. De Winter's things. I am Mrs. De Winter now. Very well, I'll give the instruction. And for a moment there, you think that this whole entire film is going to change completely. And it kind of does. But then moments later, she's back to... You know, she's back being put in her own place again because more facts and more truths are being revealed. And I find that so powerful in that moment where mm-hmm. she takes an inch and then gets pushed back a whole mile. And it's really powerful, um, especially yeah. because she's living in the shadow of this character who we never physically see. And I think that's one of the masterful things about Rebecca. And it makes sense that, you know, Hitchcock, of course, Psycho came, uh, you know, 20 years later after this. But effectively, um, you know, he, he created a whole character of Mother who we is never alive. And yet uh-huh. we're so convinced that she's actually there. But he's done it before with Rebecca. You know, Rebecca, we uh-huh. never see her, but she feels like she is there, still walking through the corridors. There's, and- there, there's so much weight to Mrs. De Winter, like you do really feel. And it's interesting because, like, you know, she's not her name isn't actually mentioned that much in this movie, even though it's idle like but there's this ever present force behind it. And, and a lot of that is because of the character of Mrs. Danvers like that is what is really pushing it. And like this is probably uh, no, I was going to say this is Hitchcock's gayest movie, but rope exists. So <laughs> like, you can't get more gay than rope. But this is up there and it's like oh, very so much subtly so. done like. I think it's like, you know, just like I was I was recently talking about All About Eve, and it's easy, I think, for people to miss the subtext if you're not looking for it or if you're not a queer person or involved in the queer community at all. It's so easy to ignore because back then you couldn't really say these things. You couldn't call it like it is. So there's lots of coding that goes on, like the fact that, you know, every story that Mrs. Danvers tells about Rebecca is so intimate. 
you know, the discussion of brushing her hair every day and all this stuff. Like, this is all coding for a gay relationship. And there's even, you know, I'm trying to remember it's in the movie, too, but there's a line in the book about how, you know, when the truth starts to come out, uh, Mrs. Danvers basically said, like, that she was, like, disgusted by all men. Um, like, she's just toying with them. She's playing with them. And, like, that is another bit of coding here. Like, okay, that's like the... Oh, well, I have to have a husband because I have to, you know, be in this society and live in this way. But, like, she doesn't really have any interest in them. Her interest, according to Mrs. Danvers, is Mrs. Danvers. Like, they have a they have a deeper connection. And it's so well handled in this movie. Like, it's just in all the men are painted pretty poorly in this movie. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody really comes out unscathed. They are, yeah. They, they are painted pretty poorly. But also on the same hand... Um, you know, I, I do care about all of them as well. You know, I, oh, yeah. I care about their emotional impact and, and, and who they are. And, and you know, I mean, I do kind of feel bad for Maxim. Like, that dude is very much been so. through it. Like, yeah. <laughs> and especially because, you know, a film like this just kind of, um, it highlights, you know, one of, uh, one of the things which we've continually talked about is the, the cultural differences um, between now and then and stuff like that. And, and you know, People basically saying, you're a rich person, I'm a rich person, uh, let's get a marriage of convenience so that we can effectively continue being rich people and yet benefit from each other. And, you know, I'm sure that still happens nowadays, um, you know, who knows, but um, it's certainly less uh, overt and less explicit than it was back in the early 1900s. And this kind of story really strips that back and strips it down and says, you know, look, these people have emotions and sure, it's a marriage of convenience and stuff like that, but Maxim had emotions and, and romantic interests and stuff like that. And Mrs. De Winter herself had emotions and a lover. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that I think is the most important part of Rebecca is that it, it's, you you mentioned, you know, unless you're, unless you're really kind of um, paying attention or, uh, you know, coded into the community, the queer community, uh, it's hard to kind of um, see the text for what it is with Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. But essentially, it's quite clear that they had a relationship of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the part that that is, like, there is so much emotion in this particular film, but that romance and that bond that they had together is so tangible, thanks to Judith Anderson's performance, thanks to how yeah. well she delivers that. And... You mentioned that she is terrifying, but she's terrifying because she has something that is genuine and true to her that she needs to protect in an era where it would be continually vilified and she would have been thrown out in the streets and, you know, ruined effectively. And and not only that, but, you know, as you watch it again, you know, from that perspective of knowing all this stuff, you also realize that, like, for her, this is Rebecca being replaced. And she is the one who had an actual relationship with Rebecca, not Maxim. So it's like bringing this strange woman in to take her place, to wear her clothes, to, you know, you know, to take down her art, you know. And that's why it's so impactful when you go into that room and everything is just as Rebecca left it. And you realize after watching again that this is not out of respect. This is a shrine to this woman that 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 Mrs. Danvers has kept for all these years after she is gone. And it's like, it's so heartbreaking 
as you as you real because the first time I watched it, Mrs. Danvers is like, oh God, she is. I don't want to. I want to hang out with that lady. She is mean to our our nice uh, nameless character, uh, <laughs> our protagonist here, um, and she's very mean to her and she's very scary. But as you watch it again, you're like, this is a this is a scarred, hurt woman um, who has lost the most important thing in her life, and not only she lost it, but she could never say out loud that she was hurt by this. It could only be couched in like. Oh, I was her servant. I was this. I was that. It can never be like, you know, for her, I lost the love of my life. I lost everything and I can't even cry about it. Like I can't show anybody how I'm feeling. This has to be like a private torment for years and years and years. Maxim gets to mourn, even though they didn't have that depth of a relationship and she just has to take it. And that is a hard thing to watch as you watch it over again, realizing where this is headed. I find as well that it's really interesting, um, Maxim's uh, gradual realisation of what actually happened to Rebecca as well, because <laughs> there is, for so much of it, he has a resentment for her, and also, you know, the feeling that he had actually murdered her, and things like that, and as we grow to realise, and of course, it is conjecture, you know, there are, we never actually get to hear from Rebecca as to what exactly her decision and her motivation is. It is literally a whole room of men saying, well, Rebecca did this. And mm-hmm. therefore, you know, and that, you know, that itself is a whole minefield of, of discussions as well. But um, the film does kind of paint her fate and her death as being, you know, a, a one that is her choice, basically, and the mm-hmm. only escape that she had. And that's quite sad as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's quite sad because the truth about her, her passing was, you know, there was talks of her possibly being pregnant and things like that. But no, the reality is, is that she had cancer and, you know, didn't really want to go through the whole treatment and stuff like that and mm-hmm. saw a way out in a husband who didn't really care for her. And right. that's the tragedy of it all. And that's the sadness. And it's wrapped up in this, this beautiful, beautiful abode. Um, you know, I, I tweeted out that Mandalay looks so much better than Tara does. Like, I, I, <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a beautiful vista and a beautiful building. And I think one of the best things is that it's each room, even if we've been in there before, feels brand new. feels like a brand new yeah. mystery to unveil and, and this gift to just glare yeah, at and look at. You know, this is, you know, trite to say, and it's been said about many movies before and after this, but, like, that house is a character in the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I brought up, um, I brought up Guillermo del Toro's uh, Crimson Peak, and it's kind of the same thing there. And that, I think, is one of the main ways he took uh inspiration from this movie is like around every corner should be exploration should be shock should be uh something revealing and that's and that's true until the final frames of this movie like every room you go in you're like oh god i don't remember what's there oh what's what's around that staircase like there's so much going on there and you know to say that alfred hitchcock was robbed for most of his career when it comes to oscars is kind of an understatement the fact that he never won a best director is insane. Like every every list of best directors on there, unless you are punishing Hitchcock for, you know, the way he treated women and you're like, I'm not interested in, you know, I can't uh, argue against that. anything no, like that. And that. you can't argue against that. But if you separate that, like there's no list of best directors that you that wouldn't have Hitchcock on it. Like he changed film. 
um, for the better in many, many ways. But this may be the biggest robbery of them all because this might be his best directed film. It is much more subtle and not showy because like I love Vertigo and I love Rear Window, but there's some showy stuff in there. Like there is a in Rear Window, there's a shot of you know, the the binoculars and you see the scene unfolding through the mirror of that of that viewfinder. And it's like, OK, you are you're really feeling yourself on that one. You really wanted to do stuff and that, you know, there's all the like all the stuff in Vertigo with, you know, him falling and all that. It's very sh- and this doesn't have any of that. It is dark. It is gothic. It takes its time. It's slow paced, but not slow paced in the sense that it's boring. But just it like it really takes its time and and it and the whole movie kind of unfolds and that takes a patient hand behind the camera. And not only to do this in general, but to do this based on a beloved book is real is a really risky thing to do to make some changes and to really because this is a I mean, this this book was like internationally known like this is a bestseller this is not this is not something like uh like psycho where they like you know we're gonna buy up all the copies and hold them so no one knows the ending like people knew what rebecca was about so to really dive into this like this is the one that that he really got robbed and and this year's oscars this 1940s oscars was so weird like you have you have two movies from the same director and you have um two movies that were nominated with the same lead actress like that, some kind of a record. Like that doesn't happen very often, and for both of those things to happen in the same year is is a really wild coincidence. Like it's just because you got Betty Davis in two movies that were uh, nominated, neither of them this movie, and then you've got him doing this and Foreign Correspondent in the same year. But for John, and I like John Ford as a director, but for Graves of Wrath to get Best Director for John Ford over this is a goddamn travesty. Like you watch those two movies, and I like the Graves of Wrath. I think it's an excellent, excellent film. But this is on another level, like in terms of craft. And that's what you're rewarding for Best Director. Like, honestly, I would I would be more accepting if uh, Graves of Wrath won Best Picture and this won Best Director. Because there's so – like, this is Hitchcock's movie. There are great performances here. But if you put in any other director, like, this isn't even close to the quality that you get because Hitchcock is behind the camera. Yeah. Look, I, I think that it's really sad that, um, you know – this only won two awards, the cinematography and best picture. Um, it's worthwhile noting as well that uh, for the 13th Oscars, which it feels very fitting that for the only best picture win that Hitchcock got, it was for the 13th Academy Awards. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> um, but this was the first time that they didn't know who the winners were in advance. So it, it oh. kicked off the whole kind of um, surprise win and all that kind of stuff, which is really nice. Um, but, you know, out of all the, the people, I, I'm sad that Joan Fontaine didn't win, but I'm glad that Ginger Rogers has an Oscar. Um, James Stewart. Yeah, although Kitty from, Foyle is not, eh, it's okay. Yeah, it's I, I didn't watch it. I haven't seen it. I have it on disc somewhere, um, but I'll get to it eventually. Um, I'm sad that Judith Anderson didn't win for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, I haven't seen Grace of Breath yet, um, but, you know, I, she's yeah, just so fine. impactful there. She's yeah. so impactful. Yeah, that, so this year is so strange because there's some there's some like greats in this lineup, right? I mean, obviously Rebecca, Grapes of Wrath, um, and then you've got uh, Philadelphia Story, which is like maybe in its genre, maybe the greatest of all time. If you're talking about kind of the screwball comedy, like it's hard to beat the Philadelphia Story. That is a fantastic movie. But then you have stuff like Our Town, uh, which I could not fucking stand. Like I almost didn't finish it. It is just so. 
so treacly sweet. Like, it's just like, ugh. And I've seen this on stage before, and I didn't like it on stage, so I'm not surprised that I didn't enjoy it in film form either, because it very it feels like a stage play as you watch it. Um, the Long Voyage Home is fine. It's a fine John Ford movie. So, uh, And there's, oh, see, I didn't even think of that. You've got uh, two John Ford movies uh, nominated for, for Best Picture as well. Um, and then you have uh, The Letter, which is actually really good. I like that. That was a, a Betty Davis movie, a little like kind of half oh, It's William Wallace, so it's going to be good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really, really good. Uh, and then we'll talk about it on our, our bonus episode, but The Great Dictator, uh, which I'll just like reveal – my basic feelings about that here, one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Fantastic. So, like, honestly, if Rebecca or The Great Dictator or The Philadelphia Story won, I would be totally, like, those are all five-star top-tier movies. Like, and then there's a big gap <laughs> between that and the rest of the movies. The rest of the movies, like, except for Our Town, none of them I was like, oh, I didn't enjoy that. That wasn't good. But it's like, it was fine. You know, yeah. it was a nice little movie. I wasn't uh, as taken by um, I wasn't as taken by the Philadelphia story as I'd hoped to be. Uh, this was my first viewing of it, and I, well, I found you're a bad person who hates joy. I is, I am uh, a bad person, but all of those people are so obnoxious, so obnoxious, and I know well, that's I mean, the that's, whole entire point that, of it. That's the genre. That's the genre, though. I think you know. I think I actually just recently watched for the first time His Girl Friday, uh, and I felt similarly about that. Um, where I was just like, oh, you shut the fuck up. Like, stop. Oh, I love his girl Friday. Hook that up into See? my veins. That is, that is just pure <laughs> delight. <laughs> See, and that's me for the Philadelphia story. Like I, like I get it, but you know, it's a, it's a definitely a stylistic choice. And I think watching it now for the first time in 2021, it can, and that was me with his girl Friday and you with the Philadelphia story. It's kind of, you know, it kind of take you aback and just well, like, it's, okay, it's, calm down, everybody. Yeah, it's it's hard when like the opening shot of the Philadelphia story, and again, you know, we we shouldn't really be bringing twenty first century um, perspectives oh, to a well, film from the nineteen forties. Argument, oh, shut up. It's fine. No, Sometimes it's not that. It's just like one of the opening <laughs> shots is you know Catherine Hepburn effectively getting punched in the face and falling over, and it's like. Oh, okay. <laughs> the face is long. It's played for comedic effect. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I really like James Stewart in that film. I, you know, he play, he plays effectively against type there and he does it so yeah. well. So, you know, it's good. And but, he won an Oscar for it. So yeah. good for him. Good, good on you. Good on you, James. <laughs> Excellent. You know, it's um, got, but, you know, it's got, that's, that's a stacked cast though. It's hard to, like, oh. it's hard to really dislike that movie fully even if you're not into it because like the the personalities in it are just so wonderful like yeah it's got a lot of charm yeah except for jimmy stewart they're all playing pretty much to type uh except for for jimmy stewart so if you like them if you like cary grant you're gonna like him in that it's it's fine so yeah yeah uh so so weird year a very weird year for the oscars that year a lot of ups and downs it is it is a strange year that's for sure um you know, there's no denying that. But for me, it's really hard to kind of um, shake the the brilliance of um, Rebecca. Look, I just think that it's. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's great, and I've I haven't you know since I watched it uh, a week and a little bit ago. I think um, I haven't stopped thinking about it, and that's what a good Hitchcock film does. Like the first time yeah. I watched Vertigo, I was like, 
you know, I feel that everybody is maybe the same for that when they see that for the first time. They're like, what the fuck did I just watch? Is it right? What, right. what was that? And right. I think that there's what... definitely some images in this movie that really stick with you. Like, oh, it yeah. just, you know, it's it's one of those movies that like it's unlike, you know, something like Rear Window. It's not. I wouldn't call it like super quotable. It's not, there's not a lot of humor to it. There's not a lot of, you know, one liners or even like dramatic one liners that you like hold on to, but just the feeling of it, the like kind of oppression of emotion in this movie, like really sticks with you. It would be a hard movie if I, if I had to convince someone to watch it or tell them, tell someone who hadn't seen it about it, it would be a really hard movie to describe. Like if you've seen it and you can have a conversation about it, it's fine, but it's like, Oh no, it's like, it's dark. It's foreboding. It's romantic. It's, you know, it's so hard to talk about if you haven't seen the movie. Cause it's just so much of about it is that feeling you get as you're watching this movie. But I get that impression from a lot of the best picture winners that we've already watched though, you know, in the sense that like, trying to explain Grand Hotel to people and say, you know, you need to watch this film about a whole bunch of wealthy people uh, somewhere in Europe and they're all just in a hotel and hanging out together. It's like, okay, why do I need to watch that? And it's all about how you sell the film, really. Um, but that one, I think that movie in particular, like that one has the shtick to it. It's like, you know, you can explain it like all these different stories are converging in this hotel and there's romance and intrigue and humor and they all connect with one another. And that's like, I think that's a pretty easy sell because that's something that's been done since then. Whereas like, I don't know um, if there have been certainly not better, but there haven't been that many Gothic romances uh, on film. Um, A lot more in literature. Um, If you're a big reader, there's a lot of stuff there. You can read stuff like even stuff like Jane Eyre is in that same vein. Um, And but like in film, like it's it's hard to do because so much is unspoken. Um, And and that's true of this book as well. It's all it's all internal internal monologue stuff uh, with the second Mrs. De Winter. And this has a huge challenge both for Hitchcock and whoever wrote the film and Fontaine to like bring all of this out in a natural way. And it's just so masterfully done. Like, I'm just not sure that there could be, um, there could be another version of this that was even as good, uh, let alone surpass this. The only, the only way I'd be interested in another version of this movie is like, God, just let a woman direct it. Um, let a woman behind the camera. Like we don't need another man's view of a, uh, undercover lesbian love story. Like I don't, I don't need another guy taking his crack at this. Like we're good here. We got Hitchcock to do it. You're not going to do better than him. So let a woman behind the camera. Cause who's the, who's the director who did the recent one? Ben Wheatley. Director you don't love. Yeah. Ben Wheatley. Yeah. And it's just, it was, it was terrible. <laughs> it was bad. It was like, um, I'm not a big Wheatley fan, but this is easily his worst movie. Yeah. Like it's, it's not. Wheatley is still coasting on the success of Kill List and, you know, good on him, but it's just like, yeah. Before we wrap up and ask the, the final question, I do just want to shout out as well somebody who, because I watched All About Eve for the first time last year and I was enamored by a certain George Sanders. And then I watched Foreign Correspondent. I'm like, oh, you're there again. And then I watch Rebecca and, and he literally just appears like yep. three quarters yep. of the way through. And I'm like, so oh, great. I think I could watch him in anything. He is, he absolutely loves being on the screen. He loves taking up, um, you know, space on the screen and acting and just embodying everything so well and he he's loves wonderful gay movies that george sanders he, he does doesn't he <laughs> gay movies. 
Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah, very much so. He, you know, he's wonderful in Fire Correspondent because he just kind of does the moustache twirling, um, you know, plot kind of delivering person without a moustache. And he's just so wonderful in it. But here I love him as well because you can just tell that he really enjoys just sticking it to Maxim and just being like, I don't like you because you didn't like Rebecca and you didn't treat her rightly and all this kind of stuff. And he's just so oh, devilish in a, in all the yeah, right ways. I love, I love that he's so devilish that he's like even willing to sell himself out. He's like, I don't, I don't care how I end up looking in this, but I'm bringing you down with me. And he does everything with that kind of knowing smirk and that twinkle in his eye. Like he's just, he's ready for whatever comes next, you know, and same thing. And, and all about Eve as well. Like he's just kind of wonderful there too. And you're right. He has that, not just because he's a big person, like he's tall, he's broad, but he just has this big personality and just is dying to like let all this out. And and this movie definitely gives him many opportunities to do so. And he's just so like so evilly enjoyable. Like you just you just love to see him do these terrible things. Like he's not a nice person, but you're still like I kind of want him to come back. I want him to talk yeah. more. Bring yeah, I, want, back I want to see what happens to him after this. Um, so I think we've made it pretty clear. But I have no, to ask this question matter, because I've, right? I painted us into a corner with this darn show. It doesn't matter. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but this film, it matters completely. Um, it matters so much. I think, you know, as you were talking about, the impact on Guillermo del Toro is clear, but also just the impact on Hitchcock's filmography. Um you know, I've been going through some of the older films that I haven't seen of his, uh, you know, uh, The Trouble with Harry and, and things like that. And oh, I like that one. Yeah, it's really nice, isn't it? And there is, uh, you know, there's a, a light charm to his films that we don't, you know, he's got a deep filmography, that's for sure. But there's a charm to some of the films that we don't usually talk about. And there's an interest and there's an emotionality to some of these ones that, you know, aren't the top of the pile. And I was wondering about this because there is that, that Hitchcock box set that everybody has and it's got like the most iconic films of his in it and all that kind of stuff. But um, some of the other films, like one of the films which we'll be talking about in the future, Suspicion, is really quite hard to find. And, you know, some of them are really hard to track down. And, And unless you've got the Criterion edition of Rebecca, I think that that's probably the best version of mm-hmm. it and it, it's probably the only version of it same with foreign, cor- foreign correspondent i don't know why i keep on tripping up on that um, <laughs> but you know it, these smaller films in his filmography which aren't really smaller films but they're smaller because that's how we treat them um treat it as if they're nothing and that's really sad and that's why rebecca matters and you know if you've made it this far it doesn't matter if you know the story for this film at all um but just watch this darn thing and then watch it again yeah. and then watch it again and forget that Ben Wheatley ever exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think it definitely matters, but it's, it's interesting to talk about because this is, I, I think sometimes we can see, you know, other people trying to do the same thing and, and succeeding uh, when we talked about other movies, but I don't know that anyone's ever really succeeded in making a movie like Rebecca. Oh, uh, it it kind of stands it kind of stands on its own yeah um even more so than you know stuff like uh stuff like vertigo and stuff like the birds and psycho uh this is really really an impressive film and it it this should be one of those movies honestly like if you're going to be a director you should have to watch this movie like this is 
this is what great direction looks like. And it's and I'm so glad you brought up Suspicion because that's like my favorite uh, Hitchcock movie. Uh, not the best one, but my favorite. It has a special place in my heart because it's, you know, it's Cary Grant playing a femme fatale. Like, that's that's fucking amazing. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and it, it kind of surprises me that that got nominated for an Oscar. We'll talk about it then. But it's not a movie now that's thought of super highly in terms of his filmography. Um but oh god, really, really good. But this, yeah, it absolutely matters. I'd love to, I'd love to play the troll and be like, yeah, it doesn't matter. We for, we've forgotten about this movie completely. But it matters not only in terms of Oscars, but it matters in terms, I think, of what we think about when it, uh, when it comes to directors, when it comes to like you know, quote unquote, the auteur theory. Because this, like, this stands out to me in Hitchcock's filmography as so different. From almost anything he ever did, uh, which is why I really, really wish that this had been rewarded with Best Director as well, because this is, I mean, this is his best work when it comes to behind the camera. And that is high praise for one of the greatest directors to ever live. Um, he didn't really do a bad job in any of his movies behind the camera. Most of them are very, very well directed. But this really stands out um, as far as like his gifts behind the camera and what what he managed to accomplish so yeah uh hot take rebecca pretty good movie it matters <laughs> yes. yeah all right uh so that's rebecca that's alfred hitchcock's best picture winning film for the 13th academy awards um this has been awards don't matter you can follow us awards don't pod on twitter uh dave where can people find you as well uh, yeah, before I say that, I guess we should let people know the the next episode we're going to do is on The Great Dictator, the Charlie yeah, Chaplin movie. Yeah, that's isn't it? <laughs> so, so look forward to that. Um, if you would like to find me online, my at on Twitter is DarnThatDave, and it feels like my podcast worlds are colliding uh, because on uh, Offscreen Death, just recently, the show I do with Mike, which you can find it at Offscreen Death, uh, we just talked about All About Eve uh, recently, which is a movie eventually we'll cover on this show. So I'm going to have yeah. to figure out something different to say uh, about it when we get to it and in you, 10 and years. And you also did um, It Happened One Night as well, so which was a yeah. good episode. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you. appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, lots of podcast material out there. If you, for some reason, are not sick of my voice, uh, just follow me at Darn That Dave, and I will. Links will be abundant uh, on that feed. There are lots of podcasts for you to listen to. Any kind of movie you want to talk about, I am probably talking about it right now. So go ahead and follow me there. But more, more importantly, follow us. Uh, words don't yeah. matter. Words don't. Yeah. That's that's the one to really follow. So that's it. Check us out. We'll have. Lots more movies to talk about. Lots more cool. good movies and uh, Sunday Green Book. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Here we are, Mandalay. Oh, please don't joke about it. Mrs. Van Hoppe is waiting, and I th- I'd better say goodbye now. I repeat what I said. Either you go to America with Mrs. Van Hopper, or you come home to Mandalay with me. You mean you want a secretary or something? I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Is that my food? I'm famished. I didn't have any breakfast. Ah, my suggestion didn't seem to go at all well. Sorry. Oh, but you don't understand. It's that I... Well, I'm not the sort of person men marry. I don't know what you mean. 
I don't belong in your sort of world, for, for one thing. Well, what is my sort of world? Oh, well, mandolin, you know what I mean. Well, I'm the best judge of whether you belong there or not. Of course, if you don't love me, that's a different thing. Fine blow to my conceit, that's all. Oh, I do love you. I love you most dreadfully. I've been crying all morning because I thought I'd never see you again. Bless you for that. I'll remind you of this one day. You won't believe me. It's a pity you have to grow up. Oh, now that's settled, you may pour me out some coffee. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Get great fall savings on all your home care and entertaining needs during the fall home care event at Safeway. Head into Safeway and get deals on products like Clorox disinfecting wipes, Swiffer wet mopping cloths, Lysol all-purpose cleaner, Swiffer wet jet mopping pads, Mr. Clean multi-surface cleaner, or Lysol power toilet bowl cleaner. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local store for more details. Offers expire October 31st. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary.